Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. Dr. Raj here. So we're going to be starting off cardiology for the boards. So needless to say that cards is always going to be high yield when we talk about the board exams. And the way we're going to present this is I'm going to show you the outline for our journey through cardiology. Of course, I'm always going to integrate because that's what the boards want. Integrating between ID and cardiology, pulmonary and cardiology. That's where they're going to get the most questions, you know, on the board exams. So what is going to be our journey for uh, the next uh, few hours to days, depending on how fast we go. It's going to be the changing paradigm of cardiovascular disease. Then we're going to talk about different risk factors. And, you know, when we talk about high blood pressure, that usually is going to be when we talk about nephrology, but I will talk about some of the unique things associated with the AHAACC guidelines in regards to hypertension. But the biggest thing is going to be hyperlipidemia. That's where all the questions come from. We'll spend a lot of time there. We'll talk about cardiac imaging as a whole. I'm going to talk about x-rays. We'll talk about echo. The big part of this section is going to be stress testing. We're going to have a lot of questions from there. Then we'll talk about invasive hemodynamic monitoring. This will be a great time to talk about shock. So we'll focus on all types of shock, including things like sepsis, septic shock. But of course, cardiogenic shock will be a huge role there and talk about well, how and why we do a Swan-Gans catheter. Then, of course, we'll talk about um, cardiac stenting. Once we um, cover this part, we're going to be all set up for all the clinicals. And probably the biggest chunk of what we're going to be talking about is the acute coronary syndromes. And we'll have all the different scenarios with up-to-date information. We'll also include stable angina. Another big chunk is going to be congestive heart failure. And then we'll end off with a valvular heart disease. So we have a, a lot in store for us uh, during this section of the video. So let's get started. So what better way than to get the blood pumping, you know, than to start off with a question. 69-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-month uh, follow-up for, fo for follow three months after AOO and non-ST elevation MI and NSTEMI. She was assessed to be low risk. Uh, she was treated medically. 
since the event, the acute event, the patient has done well. She has no chest discomfort or shortness of breath. She has hypercholesterolemia, hypertension. Her meds are an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, statin, and dual antiplatelet therapy. She has modified her diet and begun performing physical activity five days a week. Wow, I am impressed. Um, on exam, the patient is afebrile, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, BMI is 26. A normal carotid upstroke without carotid bruise. Uh, JV pulsations are normal. Great. Uh, S1 and S2 without murmurs. Lung fields are clear, distal pulses are normal, and there's no peripheral edema. Uh, labs show that she's adherent to her lipid therapy. She's at her goals, and they are normal. So where are we going with this? Everything sounds pretty good in this patient. Which of the following will offer this patient the greatest reduction in her risk for future cardiovascular events? So one thing that they do love on the board exams is always going to be uh, talking about risk stratification. You know, and a lot of my buddies are cardiologists, and they're always talking about this chart or this criteria, what will reduce their risk? Would it be this lab? Would it be this imaging? So let's look at the choices here together. Um, which ones could I knock off the bat? I would say I'm not a big fan in this case of colchicine. You know, if they're going to ask colchicine on the board exams, I mean, throw me some gout. That's going to be the, the no-brainer right there. But there are some very unique times we use colchicine when we talk about rheumatological diseases. Can anyone name a unique way to use colchicine in a room disease? You know what? One would be Bichette's. Yeah, that kind of weird vasculitis that's a small, medium, and large vessel. We use colchicine there. Anyone else? Yeah. Did someone say periodic fever? I thought I heard someone say that. So when we talk about familial Mediterranean fever, that's another time I've seen colchicine being used besides gout. But in regards to Cardiovascular disease, no, it's not going to be colchicine. Uh, folic acid, probably not. It's really hard to be folic acid, uh, you know, deplete here in the United States. And the only time I ever see folic acid being used on the boards is when you're on what drug? That's right, methotrexate. Because how does it work? It inhibits what enzyme? Dihydrofolate reductase. Yeah, you got it. So we give folic acid. Um, would it be giving vitamins? You know what I mean? In the ICU now, everyone's getting vitamin C apparently, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, when we think about uh, vitamin E and C, I think we both think about the antioxidant effect that they will have, but there is really no convincing evidence that they will reduce the risk of cardiovascular events in the future. So, you know what? I would be kind of bullied into picking what influenza vaccine, which is the correct answer. And why am I making a big stink about this is because, like I said earlier, you know, medicine is integrated. It integrates it with pulmonary. It integrates it when we talk about infectious disease and influenza vaccine. You know, I just can't begin to say, especially right now, right now, when we talk about COVID-19, you know, this winter coming up, I don't know when you're going to be watching this video, in the 2020 winter, we're going to have influenza season again. And, you know, if we get a second wave of COVID-19, that's a lot of, you know, viruses that are going to do a number on us. So it's important to take that vaccine. And of course, you know, COVID-19 is looking for people who have cardiovascular disease. They're going to have a tough course. So the last thing you want to do is not have them vaccinated for influenza virus. And on top of that, pregnant or no pregnant, 
you definitely want to get your influenza vaccine. If you are immunocompromised, of course, you're going to use the non-live virus by far. And all this data over here, and I'll read a couple of the bullet points. This is from the American Heart Association and the ACC, the American College of Cardiology. If you get influenza vaccine, it's associated with a 36% lower risk of major cardiovascular events compared to people who are not vaccinated. So maybe I, I took a moment to give my own opinion there, but this is definitely a great board question uh, that you should be familiar with. All right, so now let's talk about the impact of cardiovascular disease. You know, these slides are a little bit old, maybe a little bit more than a little bit, but the, the data here as far as what are gonna be things that are modifiable and non-modifiable as far as risk factors, they haven't changed. I just think that I love the way it's presented here. So. Um, Cardiovascular disease, what a surprise, even in 2005 and year 2020 is, according to the CDC, the number one cause of death in both men and women in the United States of America. And back then, look at that, almost a million in 2005. You can imagine what it is right now. And why am I making a big stink about this in, what, what month is this right now? I'm filming this in May, 2020 is that because of COVID-19, you know, a lot of people are not going to the ER when they have signs of stroke, when they have things that worry them for an MI because they're afraid of the virus. And a big headline right now is, where did all the heart attacks go, you know? So it, it is really scary. So maybe I'm giving my opinion now, but it is important to realize that, you know, despite all the different infections that we're encountering as a society, Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in our country. So it's very, very important that we are aggressive in treating and managing these patients. I did it again. I'm on a soapbox. Sorry about that. So <laughs> the incidence of new heart attacks, you know, back in 2005 was almost 600,000 per year. This has nearly doubled, okay? When we talk about new strokes back then, you could imagine if it was 500,000 then, it's near, it nearly, nearly doubled. So, you know, we're paying much more attention to this. The people are getting older in age. So of course, we're having more of these cases. And, you know, one of the reasons questions get on board exams is how much does it cost our country? And back in 2005, we're spending almost 400 billion a year. That number way up there, way up there. And of course, this is going to be when we talk about heart disease and talking about, um, cerebral vascular accidents, CVA strokes, when we talk about these numbers. So I think that, I think I'm back, I don't even think, I know there is a changing paradigm when we talk about atherosclerosis. You know, we know now that it is a diffuse disease. It's not a focal disease. You know, I think that in the olden days, hey, let's stent the LAD and you should be good. And the answer is not really. If you have, you know, disease in the LAD, then you're definitely going to have disease in other areas, whether it's going to be the carotid arteries, whether it's going to be in the arteries feeding the lower extremities. So PAD, CBA, CAD, they're all together. So we have to treat it as a whole, as a diffuse, rather than only focusing on one segment of the artery. <clears throat> and when we talk about treatment, it definitely involves assessment. And the big thing is the reduction of the global cardiovascular risk factors. And we're going to target that, and we're going to talk about that today. And needless to say, that treatment should begin early. Treatment should begin early. So 
Um, let's talk about those modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. This is gonna be data from the National Cholesterol Education Program, the ATP3 guidelines of what are gonna be some of these risk factors. And we do this even to this day. So of course, what do we wanna focus on? It's gonna be things that are modifiable. So number one, it's gonna be, you know, you definitely wanna know, do they smoke? Smoking is highly associated with so many things. It's associated with poorly controlled rheumatoid arthritis. It's associated with cervical cancer in females. It's associated with bladder cancer. And of course, why not cardiovascular disease? So please always ask about it, look at it when you're reading the vignettes to see if that's something to target when you talk about modifiable risk factors. Hypertension, I do have some slides on this. And, you know, because of the JMC8 guidelines, and you know what I'm talking about, when we talk about those patients who are going to be above the age of 65, and we talk about blood pressure goals, according to the JNC8, we can let that blood pressure rise uh, quite a bit in our uh, elderly patients. But, you know, the ACC, AHA had their own guidelines, and they have what they call stage one and stage two hypertension, and they are definitely more aggressive. And so let's talk, we'll be talking about these um, two guidelines during our time together here as one of the modifiable risk factors. But please get your patients to blood pressure goal. Uh, diabetes, you know, this is something where when I teach endocrinology, it's definitely going to be in the endocrine section when we talk about blood pressure goals and glucose goals. But that is a really hot topic, isn't it? Because when we talk about the oral hypoglycemics, it's really confusing now because of the fact that many of these SGL2 inhibitors, that stands for sodium glucose linked transported 2 inhibitors, you know, are getting very specific FDA approvals. The big one out there, I'm going to use a brand name, forgive me, is Jardiance. You know, Jardiance was, got the FDA approval to reduce cardiovascular mortality and this is where, you know, endocrinologists and cardiologists are working like, hey, who should be on these drugs? When should we start these drugs? But, you know, I just want to say, but if you gave me a type 2 diabetic and you had to start an oral hypoglycemic and everything was even, it still is going to be metformin. It's still going to be metformin for your board exams, okay? Um, definitely, you want to think about the things like obesity. You definitely want to encourage weight loss physical inactivity, and of course, diet. All these things are gonna play a huge role in there. And let's just be honest, you could put another bullet point here and put what? Sleep, you know what I mean? Sleep is important when we talk about the quality and the quantity of sleep. Uh, when we talk about non-modifiable risk factors, I mean, you should know them because when we talk about different scoring and risk stratification uh, you know, systems. They do talk about these non-modifiable ones, but of course, age is huge. You know what I mean? And also, when we talk about gender. And I'm going to actually spend, I think it's the next slide, I get really passionate about this, is that we really underestimated how important it is to identify cardiovascular disease in women. And I'm going to have a whole slide about that, and we'll talk about that shortly. So here are the 2018 updates in regards to epidemiology and risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So when we talk about the United States mortality rate, mortality rate from cardiovascular disease, stroke, PVD, hypertension, CHF has steadily declined over the past decade, 33% from uh, 1999 to 2009. 
So this is going to be very important. Like we're talking about over here is that these are going to be the incidents. And this is going to be talking about mortality. And so it's going to be a little difference just in case you are thinking back a few slides. You know, and this is likely because of better prevention, and better acute care efforts. And so although mortality of cardiovascular disease is decreasing, cardiovascular disease prevalence is increasing. And that's what I was saying. I should have just been patient and kept on writing my slides. And hospitalizations for cardiovascular related diseases have steadily continued to rise. So, you know, I mentioned about those blood pressure guidelines and here they are. So in 2017, the American Card College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association came up with these new definitions on the left. So a normal blood pressure is what we all remember, 120 over 80. An elevated blood pressure is when you think about the systolic going from 120 to 129. Now we talk about stage one and stage two hypertension. So stage one hypertension is going to be a systolic of 130 to 139 with a diastolic of 80 to 89. Stage two is anything above 140 and the diastolic anything above 90. Now we're gonna compare these to the JNC8 guidelines right next to it. And the JNC8 guidelines are really easy to, let's just say the word memorize because pretty much everyone is gonna be less than 140 systolic, less than 90 diastolic, and that's everyone. Less than 60, CKD, diabetes, it was really easy to understand. But if you're greater than the age of 60 to 65, you know, definitely what do we want is to have a systolic, woo, less than 150 and a diastolic less than 90. And that's a pretty high systolic and people were questioning this. And this is what led to what's called the SPRINT trial, which is gonna be on the next slide, where they really targeted patients over 75 years of age and saying, hey, let's try to be really aggressive with them and try to get a systolic blood pressure, whoa, less than 120. And let's see how that turned out. But many people ask me, well, hey, Dr. Raj, you know, for the um, for board exam purposes, which one would I use? You know, for internal medicine, we'll probably use the JNC8 because these were geared towards the internist, right? That when we talk about the ACC AHA guidelines, that's a really unique population of patients, which are people targeting, you know, cardiovascular disease and those risk factors. So they may not be as applicable to the wider range of internal medicine patients. So, you know, if they were to ask you a very specific question, they would have to state in the vignette that in regards to the ACC AHA guidelines or according to the JNC8, then that's the only way they can, you know, appropriately ask a question if they want you to memorize what cutoffs are. So let's talk about this sprint trial. So I'm sure many of you have gone over this in your journal clubs, this is classic. So when we talk about this, it's going to be a randomized trial of intensive versus standard blood pressure control. So, you know, what were the conclusions here? I'll spare you guys all the details. You know, I'm going to read this to everyone. Among patients at high risk for cardiovascular events, but without diabetes. They always ask about that. Targeting a systolic pressure of less than 120 as compared to less than 140 resulted in lower rates of fatal and non-fatal major cardiovascular events and death from any cause, although significant higher rates of adverse events were observed in the intensive treatment group. So I love these three pictures that summarize what was going on. So if you were gonna be in the intensive group, systolic had to be less than 120, 
standard less than 140. And of course, you needed more medications, almost three medications here versus 1.8 over here. And in the patients in the intensive group, sure, you had less MI, ACS, stroke, decompensated heart failure compared to standard. But when you look at the side effects for being on these medications, more hypotension, more syncope, more electrolyte abnormalities, more kidney failure, uh, orthostatic hypotension, falls were not significantly increased, and orthostatic hypotension decreased. So there were side effects of these, but um, I think that it's good that you're aware of this trial. It's often you know, commonly quoted and mentioned, whether it be on rounds or on the boards. So I did want to mention about gender. So let's talk about cardiovascular disease in women. So since 1984, the number of cardiovascular deaths has been greater for women than men. And this is the highest among African-American women. I think that's going to be huge right there. And when we talk about women have a higher prevalence of risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including elevated cholesterol levels, diabetes, high blood pressure, inactivity. So we're looking at all these modifiable risk factors that we could target over there. And why am I making you know, such a big stink about this is because you know, when I'm wearing my pulmonary hat is that I just gave a lecture about you know, how women were underdiagnosed for COPD. This is a pulmonary disease. So I, I do feel that you know, it's important that we don't, you know, we realize how important screening is and understanding the, the importance of intervention when we talk about women whether it be pulmonary or cardiovascular disease. So this is important uh, bullet points here on the right. Women have atypical bolded red symptoms more frequently than men. And this includes when we talk about chest, you know, acute coronary syndrome, they just may have nausea presenting with cardiovascular disease, shortness of breath in general, or unusual fatigue. And the last bullet point is more than two thirds of women who die suddenly from coronary disease either did not recognize the symptoms or had no previous symptoms. So that's scary. So let's have a question about risk factors. Um, 54 year old man is evaluated during a routine appointment. He has hypertension, dyslipidemia and diabetes and also has um, um, Oh, I, you know what it is? You look at this phone and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, what's just happening here? Um, has erectile dysfunction. He currently drinks three alcoholic beverages daily. <laughs> His mother had a non-fatal MI at age 55 and he is concerned about the risks of an MI. Meds are hydrochlorothiazide, a statin, sildenafil as needed. Which of the following components of this patient's medical history is associated with the greatest risk for future myocardial infarction. Oh, so let's look at the choices. So I see obesity, I mean, that definitely is a risk. Hypertension, yeah, that definitely will do it too. Dyslipidemia, well, we are talking, I, I mentioned how important lipids are and alcohol consumption. Uh, you know what, I'm gonna say they all seem to be a, a risk, you know what I mean, for future MI. But you know which one I is not on here that I always think is going to be a really huge, big risk for MI? What did I not put on here? 
That's right, diabetes. And I think I, I would probably upset a lot of cardiologists by not putting diabetes there. But it's up there. But, you know, of these choices over here, what would everyone pick? Just pick one right now. Yell it out. What would you say? No, I wouldn't pick that one. Yes, I would pick B, dyslipidemia. So when we talk about where did this answer come from, it's always going to be evidence-based medicine. So we're talking about the inter-heart study. So this is going to be a study, the effects of potentially modifiable risk factors associated with MI in 52 countries. This is a case control study. So when they, talked, when they did this study, they listed nine modifiable risk factors, and these account for more than 90% of the risk for acute MI. And we put them in a descending order. So number one, according to this, was dyslipidemia. And I got to tell you, I put over here in the box, because I talked to many of my cardio buddies, many cardiologists still believe diabetes is the worst risk factor. So I purposely didn't put it here because I don't think that would be fair and people would be kind of mumbling after this question. But diabetes, according to this study, this study was number four. You know, but smoking, it's never good to smoke and all the things we mentioned are here. But I think this is going to be why understanding, managing hyperlipidemia is so important for the board exams. All right, so I already snuck a peek over there and it says hyperlipidemia, which is gonna be next. Let me just take a quick break because I sense that people wanna quickly write a couple things down. And when we get back, we're gonna start talking about hyperlipidemia, which is high yield for the boards. Okay, so like I said, let's talk about hyperlipidemia. So for this, it's almost like a talk in a talk. So here's the overview. We're gonna talk about etiology. I'm gonna talk about primary and secondary hyperlipidemia. Of course, I'm gonna talk about screening. Um, it says ATP3 guidelines. You know, this is more historic. These are not gonna be tested on your board exams. And I just put them here just because I wanted to compare, show you how to be compare what we do now compared to, I hate saying this word, the olden days. Um, and I will mention the biggest part of this talk, which is going to be about treatment. And then I have three, I think, amazing questions to go over when we talk about hyperlipidemia. So when we mentioned there are two broad types, primary and secondary. So when we talk about primary hyperlipidemias, those are the ones that are going to be genetic in nature. So we could think about familial hypercholesterolemia. And when we think about that, um, there are two different forms. There's a heterozygous form and a homozygous form. When we talk about the heterozygous form, they're gonna have you know, half the number of LDL receptors. And because of that, cholesterol levels could definitely be elevated around 250 to 500. It's not that common. I mean, it's one in 500 people. And they have a variety of findings to show that they have hyperlipidemia. One of the many findings that's not pathognomonic could be what you see over here in this picture. And what is this gonna be called? tendon xanthomas. Once again, not pathognomonic. We can see them in other disorders, but associated with familial hypercholesterolemia. There's almost a homozygous form where you actually have almost no LDL receptors. And because of that, look at these cholesterol levels now. They're in close to the thousands. But thank God that this is very rare. How rare? One in a million. So you know, once in a while, if you ever hear about a very, very young person who develops coronary artery disease, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. 
this could mean your differential. They have this familial hypercholesterolemia. Something that's slightly more common that's still going to be genetic is something called familial combined hyperlipidemia. How common? One in a hundred. So it's not that rare. You know what I mean? And the big thing is there is a variable lipoprotein pattern. And that means maybe triglycerides are high. Maybe the HDL is low. It could be the LDL. It's variable, you know, and they definitely have a higher risk for coronary heart disease. And one of the many findings that you can get is going to be this eye. And when I look at this eye, I see this grayish pale thing around the cornea. That's called a corneal arcus. Another name for that is arcus senilis. And if I were to ask you, what is the most common cause of corneal arcus in the world? The answer is always going to be, I know, old age. We're all going to get it when we get older. But this has also been associated with um, familial combined hyperlipidemia. So this is actually a lot more common than the primary type. This is going to be the secondary types. So what can cause this? Let's go through this list together. So it could be diabetes. So when we talk about diabetes, what part of the lipid panel really tends to be elevated? And the answer is triglycerides. And you're going to ask me, why? Because of the fact that in diabetes, you don't have insulin and you need insulin to activate lipoprotein lipase to take those triglycerides and put them into adipose cells. The lack of insulin will actually induce hormone sensitive lipase while you break down these fatty stores and triglyceride levels go what? Up. So definitely it's the lack of insulin and think about hypertriglycemia in these patients. Um, obesity can definitely do that. Hypothyroidism has been associated with that. And definitely this is maybe one of the few times you may want to consider treating a subclinical hypothyroidism, depending upon how bad are those lipids. But of course, discuss this with a endocrinologist. Nephrotic syndrome. Now that's very board review-like. That when we talk about some of the uh, things that are associated with a nephrotic syndrome, we think about abnormalities in the lipid panel. And one of the many ways that we try to uh, think of why this occurs is because in nephrotic syndrome, you're just dumping, dumping, dumping proteins all the time that the liver is actually going to make up by making more lipoproteins. That's one way to think about it. Uh, chronic kidney disease, cholestatic liver disease. Now, if you want to get a great overview of this, if you could refer to my GI lecture, I gave a whole talk about two cholestatic liver diseases. One is intrahepatic, where we, where we think about what? PBC, primary biliary cirrhosis. What's my favorite antibody? That's right, antimitochondrial. Or something that's going to be extrahepatic. And what disease is that? It's primary sclerosing cholangitis. So you think about those. And what cancer is associated with that? Cholangio carcinoma. So why do I do this to you folks is always because of the fact that I want you guys to integrate and always to jog your memory, but definitely cholestatic liver disease can do this. Of course, excessive alcohol intake, modifiable risk factor, and cigarette smoking. Drugs can also cause hyperlipidemia. I listed a lot of them down here, including estrogens can do that. Some antihypertensives can do that. Um, some HIV categories, such as the protease inhibitors, can do that. In fact, there was something called uh, lipo, 
uh, dystrophy syndrome in patients taking these types of medications in HIV. And, but I would say one of the biggest ones I've seen on board exams and clinical is these atypical antipsychotics, you know? So olanzapine is a generic name, that's Cyprexa. Seroquel, what is quintanapine can do that. Geodon could do that. I think the one that's gonna be hopefully, I think the least associated with it is the brand name Abilify, you know? But definitely think about all these atypical antipsychotics. They, at some degree, they're gonna affect uh, you in regards to hyperlipidemia. So when do we test? When do we test? When do we test? Well, you know, there are many, many different guidelines. So when we talk about the lipid panel, well, the two main uh, groups that are kind of duking it out is the National Cholesterol Education Program versus the United States Preventive Task Force. So when we talk about these is that the um, National Cholesterol Education Program, they want you to be aggressive. They want you to start screening individuals younger in age. Definitely want to be screening younger in age. Maybe screening 20 years for males and for females, both. So um, when we talk about, you know, knowing your lipids, I came up with this uh, couple of questions called, do you know your lipid management? What's the scenario? So anyways, let's do three different scenarios and you tell me the answer. We have scenario number one. A uh, 42-year-old man is seen to discuss recent test results. He is asymptomatic, he has no known medical problems, and takes no meds. He does not use tobacco products. On exam, he is normal tensive, vital signs are within normal limits, BMI is 24. The remainder of the exam is unremarkable. His 10-year risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease based on a pooled cohort the equation is 3.4, okay? Uh, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment of this patient's hyperlipidemia? And let's review what the labs turned out to be. Cholesterol is 270, I mean, that's elevated. LDL is gonna be 170. Sure, that's a little bit on the higher side. HDL is great at 40, and his triglycerides are also elevated. So based upon this, um, should we start him on a low statin therapy? Should we start him on a moderate? Or what about a high? Or should we go for some lifestyle modifications? So a couple things. He's 42, no medical problems at this time. His 10-year risk is 3.4. So of course, that's going to be the question. When we need to do his 10-year risk, what is the magical percent that we're looking for? So based upon all these things, he could start off with lifestyle modifications. He definitely could start with lifestyle modifications. We are gonna follow up with them. We are gonna see what happens to his lipid panel and then we'll go from there. So the answer here is going to be D is in dog. So when we talk about that, uh, that risk that we're talking about, it's gonna be, anything that's gonna be higher than that. How high, I can't tell you yet because I have another question about this. I don't wanna uh, uh, steal my own thunder away. But he's not a diabetic, he had no atherosclerotic disease, his LDL is not above 190. All these things factor in. This is someone you wanna do lifestyle modifications with. Outstanding. What about scenario number two? Now we have a 35-year-old woman 
evaluated after a laboratory test show an elevated LDL cholesterol level during some routine screening. The family history is remarkable for an MI in her father at age 45. Okay, a family history. She takes no meds. Vital signs, her BMI is elevated at 30. The remainder of the exam is unremarkable. We do some labs. ALT is normal. TSH is normal. Total cholesterol is definitely elevated. LDL is 195. HDL is 55. Triglycerides are 220. The patient is instructed to do what? Lifestyle modifications to lower her atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. I'm all about that. Uh, according to the ACC AHA guidelines, which of the following is the most appropriate additional treatment for primary prevention for uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in this patient? So let's look at the choices. Um, you know, looking at the the labs over here are really focusing on the, the most important one, which is an LDL greater than 190. I don't think I could pick D saying, you're good to go, no additional treatment. Um, when I look at the labs to say, let's start off with this PCK9 inhibitor. Wow, that's a, a mouthful. Um, I don't think I'm going to do that just yet. I think it's a little aggressive in, in many different ways. So it really comes down to B and C. I definitely feel a statin is in order. And now you need to know the guidelines. So when you have an LDL greater than, than 190, is this gonna be moderate or high intensity? And the answer is, this is high intensity. The answer here is B. All right, very good. And we'll go over these guidelines together. So what about the last scenario? Um, 65 year old woman is evaluated during a wellness visit she has no symptoms. Medical history is significant for hypertension and impaired fasting glucose. She has never smoked cigarettes. Her meds are hydrochlorothiazide and metformin. On exam, blood pressure is 130 over 80. Other vital signs are within normal limits. BMI is 26. The remainder exam is normal. Uh-oh, here we go again. Her estimated 10-year cardiovascular risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is 11.1. Mm. Is that high? Is that low? Let's find out. Patient has a total cholesterol. It's elevated at 271. LDL is not too bad at uh, 155. Um, HDL is 50. Trigs are elevated at 330. In addition to, of course, lifestyle modifications, you're always your go-to answer on the boards. Which of the following is the most appropriate therapy for primary prevention in this patient? So, oh, they gave another, you know, PCK-19 inhibitor, 9-9 inhibitor. And I would say, no, that seems really aggressive at this time, you know. Um, should we put the patient on ezetimide? Ezetimide goes by the brand name Zetia. It's a cholesterol absorption inhibitor. Um, I don't even think these are FDA approved for monotherapy. I think they're only going to be add-on therapy to what? Statins. Uh, Gemfimbrazole. Well, that's going to be a medication that really lowers triglycerides more than anything else. But, you know, when we talk about what's going to be the target, it's always going to be LDL and it's going to be about statins. And I would say based upon this 10-year uh, risk score being elevated, I definitely feel that this patient needs to be on a moderate intensity statin. And one of those statins that 
we use for that is Simvastatin. Brand name, Zocor. So the answer here is gonna be one, D. All right, so finally, I'm gonna tell you what the, what is gonna be the answer to that score. So, in patients who are 40 to 75 years of age, no atherosclerotic disease or diabetes, and a 10-year risk of greater than 7.5% or higher, that's gonna be the number, I hate to say it, you need to memorize. These are going to be patients that need to be placed on moderate uh, therapy stand, moderate intensity. So those are the three most common scenarios I have seen on the internal medicine board exam and UCL, uh, USMLE. So before we go diving into therapy, let's take a step back and kind of show where we were before we have these new guidelines. So in the past, we were using the ATP3 treatment guidelines. And back then, it was all about checking the LDL obsessively. Kind of like you start therapy, what's your LDL goal? Was your LDL going to be less than 160? Was it less than 130 based upon how many risk factors do you have? And that was fine, but things have changed quite a bit. So this was the olden days. Where are we right now? We are at talking about these guidelines over here. That took a lot of switching <laughs> to get there. So here we were back here. And one thing I did want to show is that in when we talk about uh, LDL goals, there was an interim report back then that said that if you had cardiovascular disease and diabetes, you may want to have an LDL less than 70. And that less than 70 is going to kind of creep in again when we talk about newer guidelines. So these were the guidelines from the past when we talk about just looking at LDL goals based upon risk factors. Now we use this, which are the ACC AHA guidelines. And personally, I feel these guidelines are a lot easier. Um, so kind of let's walk through this together. So we basically have this in four quadrants. And on the top two quadrants are gonna be when you wanna use high intensity statins, and the two lower quadrants are when you wanna use moderate intensity statins. So we're keeping it really simple. So when you wanna use high intensity statins, it's gonna be just in two populations. Anyone with clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, whether it's gonna be a stroke, whether it's peripheral arterial disease, whether it's gonna be coronary artery disease, you're gonna have what? High intensity statin. And the other one, it's going to be LDL greater than what? 190. And I remember we had a question, I think it was scenario number two, where the patient's LDL was 195. So if you have any of these two, you're going to be on what? High intensity statins. And at this time, there were only two statins that got the FDA approval for being high intensity. And that's going to be our friends, Atorvastatin goes by the brand name Lipitor, and Resuvastatin goes by the brand name Crestor. And when you start these, there's going to be goals, right? That you want to lower the LDL greater than 50%. So you start statins and you want to actually uh, lower the LDL by greater than 50%. But the big question is once if you also have diabetes in any of these cases. So if you have diabetes in any of these cases, you may want to actually make the LDL less than 70. And we'll talk about what could be some add-on things you could do to a statin if you need to get the LDL less than 70 in certain cases. So these are high intensity. 
Down here under moderate intensity, there are only two groups, right? One in red, which are diabetic. If you only, and I hate the word only, have diabetes and you're the age 40 to 75, then your LDL has to be where? Somewhere between 70 and uh, 189. If your LDL is somewhere between this, then you want to be on a moderate intensity statin. So notice how I said 70 over here, because if we were to go back, boom, boom, boom over here, based upon studies that show that certain groups where you have diabetes and uh, coronary artery disease, less than 70 could be a really appropriate goal. They have this uh, very broad LDL range. And for these individuals, if you are in between these ages, your LDL is anywhere in between this, you should be on a moderate intensity statin. And notice how I didn't list any statins here because almost all of them got approval for it, whether it's gonna be Pravacol, whether it's gonna be uh, uh, Simvastatin, there are so many out there. And you wanna lower the LDL from 30 to 50%. And of course, depending where you are, you may wanna go less than 70. On this side, same thing, except instead of diabetes, your 10-year risk evaluation is gonna be greater than 7.5. And that was scenario number what? Three. That, that one was like a 11% or so. So of course, what do you wanna do here? Start off with a moderate intensity statin. In that case, we did simvastatin. So when we talk about um, how do we get to goal and what are we gonna use, let's talk about treatment. So let me go back a little bit, I mean go back, and now we'll look at the treatments, and then I want to continue and talk about what are some of the finer points of the guidelines. So when we talk about treating patients with hyperlipidemia, boom, boom, let's talk about these. Here are the drugs. So when we talk about these drugs, um, of course, the guidelines are very one-sided. It's statins and more statins, but there are patients on other medications, and we should know what these side effects are going to be. So let's go down. Let's just list the drugs that treat hyperlipidemia. So of course, the first class is always going to be statins. Basic science questions, how do statins work? They're HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, okay? And there are many statins out there, simvastatin, atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, and they will ask you what are the two main, most common side effects of a statin. And the first thing is always gonna be, you tell me, is it gonna be myositis? Is it gonna be myopathy? Is it gonna be myalgias? Or is it gonna be rhabdomyolysis? What do you think? So I ask it that way because we kind of get confused sometimes. So it's not going to be rhabdomyolysis. Can statins induce a really bad necrotizing myopathy? The answer is sure. It's rare. You know what I mean? But rhabdomyolysis is really serious. That's going to give you CK levels in the thousands upon thousands. You're going to be in renal failure. And the FDA would not approve a category of drug whose most common side effect is rhabdomyolysis. So it really comes down to is the most common side effect of a statin going to be uh, myalgias or myopathy? And the answer is always going to be myalgias. So once again, which one is subjective? Which one's objective? Subjective is always myalgias. That's what my patient comes in complaining of. Oh, I feel just achy, 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 achy. 
But myopathy is pathology, is myopathy. Myopathy is pathology. So how do we make the diagnosis objectively of myopathy is you order muscle enzymes, that the CK is elevated, the autolase is elevated, the LDH, the AST, they'll be elevated. Now you have damage to the muscle. And remember, once again, you know, statins are in the water practically. There's no way that category of drug will get approval if myopathy and myositis are the most common side effects. It really is just myalgias, right? And when we talk about myalgias, that's where we start talking about what, seeing down here, it's called coenzyme Q. You know, many of my patients, when they get myalgias, will take it. And it's kind of a give and take. Sometimes people say it works, sometimes it doesn't. I look at the evidence-based literature. It's really a give and take, you know what I mean? Some are good studies, some aren't really. But you think about myalgias. Um, the second most common side effect of the statins is not gonna be cirrhosis or liver failure. It's going to be transaminitis, right? And let's be honest, I mean, if you really wanted to pick a liver enzyme that would be affected by a statin, which one would you pick? Would it be AST or AL? I would go with AL because L stands for what? Liver. So you would think about those as a common side effects of being on statins. What's another category of drug that we could talk about? Well, we could put bile acid sequesterants. It's already up there. And, you know, that actually was the first category of drug that we used many, many, many years ago to treat hyperlipidemia. Um, the classic drug is cholestyramine or cholestopol. We don't really use it that much. I pretty much only give it to people I don't like. Just joking. <laughs> Why? Because it causes diarrhea and flatulence and all this nasty stuff because how does it work? So remember, where in the intestine do we reabsorb bile acids? It's gonna be in the terminal ileum. So what does this, these medications do? They block the reabsorption of bile acid, and that's why you get a lot of the diarrhea. Because remember, bile contains lots of what? Cholesterol. It just has lots and lots of cholesterol in it. That's why you wanna dump it out. But we really don't use this category of medications. What's a, a buzz word for the boards is kind of like, you know, bile acid sequesterants do increase triglyceride levels. So if you have hypertriglycemia, definitely don't put them on this because it'll make the levels go even higher. Um, another category of drug could be nicotinic acid, which is niacin, you know? And niacin's claim to fame is what? Yeah, raising the HDL. Um, when we use this, basically what's one of the side effects we all memorize? Flushing, that's why we always give what? aspirin when they take the medication. And it's not easy clinically to give, you know, niacin, you got to slowly titrate it up to almost two grams a day. Um, and right now, like I said, it's all about LDL. It's all about statins. So until the data is really convincing about putting patients on niacin to lowering, to raise DHDL, it's not being used as much, but you should be familiar with it. What's another category of drug? What about these two? But let's focus on the fibrates. So when we talk about fibrates, you know, it's claim to fame is always going to be lowering triglycerides, probably the most of all of these. Remember, they all can lower triglycerides except bile acid sequesterants, but fibrates tend to do it quite a bit. Uh, there's Timfimbrazole. There's so many brand names. There's Tricor. There's Lopid. And what is a side effect we worry about is, you know, transaminitis, being irritating to the liver. 
And these drugs were used as add-ons to statins, which were already liver irritating. So the combination of statins and fibrates really caused a lot of liver issues. So what did they do? They came up, they didn't really come up, but they started using more omega-3 fatty acids. These are omega-3 fatty acids that, you know, you can get from the GNC, <laughs> you can buy them, and they will lower triglycerides pretty well. Um, and they don't have the liver toxicity. But once again, the data for focusing on triglycerides first is just not there just yet. But notice how I put right here a picture of something called Lovaza. So a very specific drug company did studies to really prove that these omega-3 fatty acids really lower triglycerides rate. And they, you know, got an FDA approval and they have a brand name of a drug called Lovaza. So Lovaza is super expensive, but it's FDA approved. And like I said, their claim to fame is that it does everything the fibrates do, except they're not liver irritating. Let's keep on going. What about down here? This is the cholesterol absorption inhibitors. This is gonna be in the questions we're talking about. The only drug out there is ezetimide. goes by the brand name Zetia. And its claim to fame is that it can only be given with a statin. You can't use it as monotherapy. And we've been doing this for quite a while. And in fact, um, simvastatin combined with ezetimide and they made the brand name Vitorin. So we, are, we have already been doing this. So think about Ezetia as an add-on to a statin. If you're not reaching you up, your LDL goals over here. And of course, you know, before we go back, we start talking about a couple of other things. There's the newest, most expensive category of drug known as the PCSK9 inhibitors. So I put the first one that came out. I know there's another one out there. I mentioned it earlier in one of the questions. And let's go by the brand name, which is easier to pronounce, Rapatha. And I think the take-home message is, how does this drug work? You know, so in this diagram in the middle, this will be the liver. On the liver, you have LDL receptors. And what do they do? They take up LDL. This is great. They take up all the LDL. And there is something called PCSK9, which, is, which will bind to the LDL receptor and inhibit it. Well, that's bad because you've inhibited that receptor, then you can't take up the LDL. So what do we do is block PCSK9 so the LDL receptors stay on the liver and they can keep on taking up all the LDL and you know lower your LDL in the serum. These category of drugs were approved. The first one was in August 27, 2015. Um, they're injectable, which people don't like, and they're expensive, which people don't like. <laughs> so this is the newest category of drug. I went back purposely because, you know, on the boards, there are people that like things that are a little homeopathic. And what are some homeopathic things that people take for the lower their cholesterol? Up here on the top right, you can think about garlic. Yep, garlic is one of those things. And if I were to ask you, what is one of the side effects of garlic you should know for the boards? What? What did you say? Halitosis. Yeah, sure, I'll give you that one. But no, it's not bad breath. You know, we worry about um, antiplatelet effect. So a lot of these homeopathic medications that we take for a variety of things that begin with the letter G have antiplatelet effect. So ginkgo, uh, ginseng, garlic, they all have some antiplatelet effect. And this is important because people take garlic, also take a lot of aspirin and clopidogrel. So just be aware of it. And on the top left over here, a lot of people take red 
rice yeast. And why would people take that? Is because that was the first plant where they discovered what? The enzyme HMG-CoA reductase. And that is the way statins work. And so what some people are doing like, well, why buy the drug when I could just take HMG-CoA reductase from the red rice yeast and lower the cholesterol? Doesn't work that, you know, that well, but I just wanted to mention it because they may put these in the vignette to kind of confuse you. Um, and with that, all that being said, let's go forward now because we went through all the different side effects and all the categories out there. And now I want to say a couple of finer points about these lipid guidelines. So when we talk about the lipid guidelines, what's the good and what's the bad? I purposely left off the ugly. So the good thing about these guidelines are that there's no LDL target. So remember, I'm not going to go back again, that the ATP3 guidelines were like, what's the LDL? What's the LDL? Are we at go? Are we at go? Get labs. Get labs. You know what I mean? So we don't have an LDL target. And it's pretty much just give statins. So it's pretty easy to, you know, understand. And they only really used randomized controlled trials in their data. And I like that. But the bad is always going to be, well, it, there are a lot of conflict of interest about everyone being on a statin. And the next bullet point is, are we trying to statinize the entire nation? So, But I do want to say a couple things that I mentioned already that there are going to be individuals that after you put them on a statin, you can't reach the goal. And that's where there are two other drugs that were studied that you can use uh, if you're not reaching a goal on a statin. And it's right here on the bottom. So statins, ezetimide, and PCSK9 inhibitors have been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. Among the three I just listed, statins are the best studied and significantly less costly and much, much easier to use. So these are the three drugs uh, categories that you need to know for the board exams. So let's talk about ezetimide a little bit because uh, there was a trial called the Improve-It trial and cardiologists love talking about this. So when we talk about the Improve-It trial, Improve-It stands for Improved Reduction of Outcomes by Torin, which is simvastatin and ezetimide efficacy international trial. So I showed the Kaplan-Meier curves over here in blue is gonna be simvastatin by itself. On the bottom is the combination. And on the y-axis is the primary endpoint. And look at the risk reduction that you would have that's sustained over seven years being on the combination. And this is why uh, ezetimide has been approved as iodine therapy when we talk about um, the lipid guidelines. Good, good, good. And what does my middle bullet point stay here? high-risk cardiovascular disease. Remember, that's the top boxes over here. Let me just show you over here that I was talking about. Whose LDL remains above 70 after treatment with the statin, you could consider a PCSK9 antibody or ezetimide. Uh, and which one do I probably use the most? Probably ezetimide because it's oral and it's easy to take. So let's do this. Now that I've really just you know, talk so much about lipid therapy with your folks. Let's talk about a 48-year-old male is evaluated during a follow-up appointment. Um, three months ago, he sustained a ST elevation MI. He underwent stenting, and he got a bare metal stent of his left circumflex artery. 
He was started on high-intensity rosuvastatin, which is Crestor, at the time of his MI. And his ALT and serum creatinine levels were normal. His recovery has been uneventful. He follows a heart-healthy diet. He exercises regularly, and he has no chest pain. He denies any dyspnea, palpitations, or lightheadedness. He reports no fatigue, muscle pains, abdominal pain, or changes in skin color. Medical history is significant for hypertension. Meds are going to be aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, resuvastatin, and clopidogrel. You know what? I kind of like all this. It's an MI. He's on the things that reduce what? Mortality, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, statins, double antiplatelet because he got what? Stented. I'm loving everything. Uh, on exam, vital signs are normal. There is no muscle or abdominal tenderness. The remainder of the physical exam is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate lab study to obtain during this visit? And this is a great question. Uh, let's do this together. So which one would I probably not pick? Um, probably want to do a C-reactive protein, right? That's for risk stratification. I think we missed the boat already. He's got an MI. I feel bad. You know, um, what about... A, a and B, you know, we talked about the two most common side effects of a statin are what? Myalgia and uh, transaminitis. Should we check these things? The answer is, nah. Even though I told you these are side effects, you know, when someone, if he were to say, my muscles are aching, I am having these problems, you could consider doing that, but let's go back to this vignette. He's having no muscle pain, and there's no just empirically checking CK levels for the sake of doing it. You know, it's really tempting to check the liver panel. You know, if he was a drinker, if he's taking other drugs, sure. But, you know, no right upper quadrant tenderness. He's doing well. I, there is no guidelines or recommendations to rechecking that. What you do need to do is check that fasting lipid panel. Why? Boom. Let's go back. Let's go back. That we said that he had an MI, so he's up here in the high-intensity statin panel. He needs to have an LDL code to be less than what? 50% of where he started. So how do you know what his LDL is unless he checks a what? A fasting lipid panel. So in this case, the answer is gonna be what? C. Good job, everyone. And here you go, here's my answers. You got my slide deck. You wanna get that uh, LDL panel around one to three months after the initiating of a statin therapy for adherence and effectiveness to drop them below 50% of what we want. If he's super high risk, like he has diabetes, he's going less than 70. After you maximize your statin, you may consider what? Ezetimide, consider what? A PCSK9 inhibitor. Very good. ALT, you can measure it before initiating therapy to rule out undiagnosed liver disease. However, you know, the FDA no longer suggests serial measurements of um, liver enzymes. Good. So let's just finish this off. We're doing amazing over here. So when we talk about um, atherosclerosis, I mentioned already that this is not a disease of one segment of the vessel. This is going to be looking at the picture, the whole picture. And a couple of things that are very important when we talk about coronary heart disease is that you know, even if you have a normal angiogram, this is a normal angiographic appearance, Still, you could have uh, clinical significant stenosis and atherosclerosis. And how do we know this? 
there were studies, and here are going to be the references down here, where individuals who had a normal angiogram, they did something called IVIS. What does that IVIS stand for? Intravascular ultrasound. And in the same patient, you can see these athero, atheromas, all these cholesterol plaques that can break off and travel distally, causing that infarction. So why are we so aggressive? Why did I spend so much time talking about the paradigm of atherosclerosis? Is because it can progress rapidly. Here are going to be the studies where I got this uh, picture from that you can go from a very open lumen to a complicated, crowded lumen in just 18 months. And that's why we're so aggressive when it comes to modifiable risk factors for atherosclerotic disease. I love this uh, graph for one reason. People always ask me, well, what is the basic science behind cardiovascular disease? Why are we modifying these risk factors? What do they do? So I put in the big three, which are going to be hypertension. We spoke about different guidelines, the J and C8 guidelines, comparing that to the AHA, ACC guidelines. Spent a lot of time talking about lipid management. And I've talked about diabetic, diabetes control, try to get that A1C to goal. And remember, in most individuals, sure, you want to get that A1C below 6.5, but there are, there are going to be people with comorbidities where you may want to settle for a higher A1C. And we'll go over that in endocrinology. But you want to hit your goals. If you don't, well, then what happens? You get endothelial dysfunction. And endothelial dysfunction leads to what? Decreased nitric oxide. And remember, what does nitric oxide do? It's a baso dilator. And if you can't vasodilate, you're going to what? Constrict. That's going to impair what? Blood flow. What about this one? Endothelial dysfunction increases what? Cox activity. That's why we give patients with heart disease and stroke what? Aspirin to decrease that. Next thing you know, you're going to get lots of inflammation. And that's why, what is a, a marker of inflammation that we see in heart disease? That's right. C-reactive protein. That's why we check it. And of course, endothelian. And endothelian is a very potent vasoconstrictor. And you don't want this. And all these things lead to what? Atherosclerosis, which leads to what? Cardiovascular disease. So this is why we're so aggressive. And <laughs> excuse me, I put this here, you know, a little bit outdated, but it's scary. But back in 2003, what am I showing? is that in people who are going to be in the dark shaded areas, they're going to have, you know, people with more than two risk factors of what? Either blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, at least you're smoking. That's almost the entire United States right there. It is scary. And just to pound the point is that majority of people who have a myocardial infarction, they're caused by lesions with less than 50% stenosis. So remember, just because you shot the angiogram and it says, hey, it's less than 50% stenosis, doesn't mean not to be aggressive with your lipids, diabetes, and high blood pressure. So let me end on this. What are the key takeaways for our first section together is that atherosclerosis can begin early. It progresses rapidly. Once again, atherosclerosis is a diffuse disease. It affects all of the vascular beds, and it can cause coronary artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, and stroke. 
And cardiovascular disease has many risk factors. We spoke about them already. Put them into two broad categories. It's going to be your modifiable and non-modifiable. And for the modifiable ones, know your guidelines, treat early, treat effectively, watch for side effects. And what we talked about is going to be the foundation of all the other sections we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to cheat a little bit before I say goodbye. We're going to start talking about cardiac imaging now. So we're doing a great job. We'll talk about x-rays, echoes, stress testing, and wow, a lot of stuff. So why don't you catch up on your notes and I'll see you soon.